This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this Roman-themed festive podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Before we get started, don't forget that we release new episodes every Thursday. Just tap or click subscribe to ensure you get them all. Now, as Christmas festivities get into full swing, we're delving into the story of the Roman midwinter festival that preceded it, Saturnalia. And joining us to guide us through the history and traditions of this ancient pagan celebration is curator for Hadrian's Wall and the Northeast region, Dr. Francis McIntosh. Francis, we've briefly mentioned Saturnalia on previous episodes about winter festivities through history, but can you start by explaining what Saturnalia was and when it took place? Yeah, absolutely. So originally in the early Roman kind of Republican period, it started as a festival of Saturn and was originally celebrated on December the 17th. So Saturn was one of the Roman gods and he was a god of sowing and harvest. And his feast today was the 17th of December. But by the late first century BC, the festival of Saturnalia fluctuated from kind of anywhere from three to seven days. And it still started on the 17th, but it ran right through to the 23rd and included a few other special days, one of which was the Opalia, which was a festival day for Saturn's wife, Ops, who was very much linked to the soil and to toil and ploughing. And then that was the 19th of December. And then it finished on the 23rd of December on a day called the Sigillaria, which is a day of present giving. I see. So really, as a forerunner of our modern midwinter festival of Christmas, it doesn't really coincide date-wise at all. No, it's the end of Dece- towards the end of December, but it doesn't kind of become the 25th of December till much later. Of course. We'll get on to that when we sort of pick apart the similarities and the differences. So it celebrated Saturn, who was the god of sowing and harvest. Specifically, it's celebrating, I suppose, nature and the coming and going of nature, the, the seasons, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's right. So Roman festivals, we call them festivals, but they were religious kind of days, basically, were almost always to honour a god or a goddess who had some control or dominion over a specific aspect of life. And this one, Saturn, the god of sowing, and his wife or consort Ops, who's the goddess of soil. It's all about that midwinter need, I suppose, to see that life will come back. So originally, when it was just this one-day festival, it began, there was a sacrifice at the Temple of Saturn in Rome, and then a public feast afterwards. And the aim of the celebration was to recall this mythical golden age of Saturn, which is meant to be back in the very early days before you know Rome was Rome, where gods and men lived in harmony. So it was all linked in with kind of harking back to better times, which when you're in midwinter, you want to look forward to spring, don't you? And things getting better and warmer and there being food available. So there was this pre-existing sort of myth of a time, a bit like the Genesis story, I suppose. Yeah. And I mean, even at the time, you know, of the Republic and then later the Roman Empire, men weren't, and women, you know, weren't fully in charge of their own destiny. They very much thought that the gods and the goddesses had a real effect on their lives. That's why they celebrated them with their you know the religious festivals and why they made offerings to them at their temples because they really felt that if you didn't honor Saturn for example that you might not get a good harvest because he would you know you would anger him so 
the deities, the gods and goddesses were really very important in ensuring a happy and successful life for the Romans. You've described a little bit about what happened during Saturnalia, but how do we know what happened at Saturnalia? Were there good records of the customs that survived? There's a few records. So if we start with the origin of Saturnalia, we find that out actually from one of our later writers, Macrobius, who was late 4th, early 5th century. And he has three works that survive. The longest one is all about Saturnalia, even though it's not complete. And there it's a group of friends who are all meeting on Saturnalia for the dinners that they would have. And one of them particularly was very good at history. And he tells you all them all about the origins of the festival of Saturnalia and how it started with Saturn and his link to agriculture and things. We know the date of the festival of Saturnalia because of something called the Feriale Duranum, which is a calendar of religious festivals found on papyrus in the Roman military garrison of Dura Europos. Now, Dura Europos was a city founded in about 300 BC in present-day Syria, halfway between Aleppo and Baghdad on the banks of the Euphrates. And this Feriale Duranum is really important for giving us an idea of how busy the Roman year was with these religious festivals. It dates from about 225 AD. Unfortunately, it doesn't tell us what happens on Saturnalia, but it does tell us the date. But thankfully, we have a couple more sources which do tell us a little bit more about what actually took place in Saturnalia. We've got some poems by Marshall, who was a satirist, um, lots of very sarcastic poems. But one of the ones that's really quite detailed was something called a commemoration poem, This is a poem by someone called Publius Papinus Statius, who was a poet in the court of the Emperor Domitian, so in the late first century. He was writing this poem to praise Domitian. So you have to take some of his things with a pinch of salt in terms of how great he's saying Domitian was. But in terms of what happened on the day, gives us a real idea of what might have happened on Saturnalia in other days. So in his poem, he talks about how everyone went to the amphitheatre for this celebration. And he says he's going to relate Merry Caesar's joyous day and the tipsy feast. Now, that sounds quite Christmassy, doesn't it, really? A joyous day and a tipsy feast. And he talks about a food being thrown into the audience, coming down on wires in baskets above the audience and the people who came. And this food was free and it was given to all. So he talks about must cakes, which are sweet cakes, dates, pastries, and he says there are downpours of food coming down. So there he's painting a, a scene of lavish food being given away to people for free. And what's quite interesting is one sentence where he says, every order eats at one table, children, women, populace, knights, senate. Freedom has relaxed reverence. So there normally, if you go to the amphitheatre or the theatre, you very much sit in your class you buy the most expensive ticket you can and you sit in your groups. Whereas at this day, the Saturnalia day in the amphitheatre, everybody sat together and everyone was given food and drink free, and which is quite an unusual thing, really. And then he talks about how there was female gladiators fighting. There was other food given out late at the night. So it seems like a full day. So from Statius, we get a real idea of the potential celebration that could be for Saturnalia. That's really interesting. We've obviously mentioned... Saturnalia, and we also mentioned Saturnalia. So, well, which is the best pronunciation? I don't know if I'm honest. I am not a classicist, so I did not do Latin or Greek at school. 
I mean, perhaps it's because I'm Northern. I say Saturnalia. Um, I don't know. There's probably, if you asked 10 classicists who study the language, they'd probably give you five on one side and five on the other. Because we don't really know how Latin sounded when it was spoken. This is true. Okay, well, we'll just plough on to use an agricultural pun. You've talked a bit about the celebrations themselves, thanks to those pieces of historical evidence. Were the same customs observed across the whole of the Roman Empire? Because obviously where that piece of papyrus was found, you know, between Baghdad and Aleppo, that just gives us a real sense of how big the Roman Empire was. So could the celebrations have been a lot different, for example, up on Hadrian's Wall, on the very north northern part of the territory? If you want the honest and boring answer, we could say, well, we don't really know. Because the sources we have mostly relate to Rome, other than that one, the, the festivals papyrus from Jura Europos. But we would probably imagine that it is quite similar. If this is an empire-wide celebration, then I imagine a lot of things would be fairly similar. There'll be a lot of standards. So we talked before about what happened on this big celebration that the Emperor Domitian threw. But in terms of what you know, the everyday people do for Saturnalia, we know it was a public holiday. So schools and courts of law were closed. Our fifth century author, Macrobius, says it was also against divine law to wage war on the Saturnalia. So you are really risking the wrath of Saturn and the other gods if you tried to wage war on Saturnalia. But pretty much business would stop on Saturnalia, whether that was just the one day of the 17th, then maybe the 19th and 23rd, or whether it was across the whole seven days, it's not really clear. And it really was kind of a joyous carnival-style atmosphere. There was this idea that you would be able to eat and drink as much as you want. It was kind of the overconsumption is something that's associated with Saturnalia. Gambling was allowed in public over this period, which it was not at the rest of the time. It said that people wore less formal clothes and there was a specific hat, a kind of a soft cap called a pillai that was worn over Saturnalia. And on one of the days, it's not clear which one in the seven, masters would wait on their slaves. So we have to remember that the Roman Empire ran, you know, on a slave economy. Most households that were of any size would have many slaves who would carry out most of the duties. But for one day or one meal, the masters would wait on their slaves. And in that sort of line of inverting the norm, each household could choose a mock king to preside over festivities and he was called the leader of Saturnalia. We might know him or her as the Lord of Misrule. That's something that carries on later. And it's usually this Lord of Misrule or um, Mock King was a lowlier member of the household. Uh, So it could have been a slave or a child. And they were really responsible for making mischief during the celebrations. They might wear crazy clothes, you know, out of the ordinary. They might play pranks on guests. So a lot of the kind of social norms are changed. You know, you can do things you can't normally, such as gamble. You don't work. You'll be waited on if you're a slave. And then there's a few other things that we know about. So gifts were given, and that was generally kind of a private thing. What kinds of gifts would people receive for Saturnalia, Saturnalia celebrations? A whole range, really. One that's known to be a common gift were candles, taper candles, and they were signifying light returning after the solstice. So, you know, that shortest day in winter and that's quite a traditional thing maybe you know it's a light but we also have a list of gifts listed by Marshall that first century poet and he says it's quite a long list with quite varied things if you so bear with me he said you could give 
writing tablets, dice, knuckle bones, money boxes, combs, toothpicks, a hat, hunting knife, an axe, lamps, balls, perfumes, pipes, a pig, a sausage, a parrot, tables, masks, books, pets. So you can see from that list, you know, the type of gifts that could be given were really varied and you could give extremely pricey and expensive gifts like an exotic animal, say a parrot or but Marshall seems to suggest that giving token gifts of low kind of monetary value actually is an inverse measurement of the high quality of a friendship. So you don't just splash the cash. You maybe think of something small that's a bit more meaningful to somebody, which is quite interesting to think about. Obviously, this is all happening around midwinter, which we should probably explain is technically the 21st of December. Is that right? Yeah, that's the midwinter solstice, isn't it? Officially the shortest day of the year. Although in the Roman calendar with a slight difference, I don't think they celebrated it on the 21st. I think it was slightly later in December with the way their calendar worked. Ah, okay. How did these celebrations, gift giving, general traditions around Saturnalia, Saturnalia develop over time? Because obviously the Roman Empire, particularly in terms of its relationship with Britain, Britannia, was some 400 and something years of experience. But obviously the Roman Empire lasted a lot longer than that. So do we know how things changed over time? Oh, we know a little bit. And we particularly know kind of the development of this celebration from Macrobius, that 5th century author, because he's talking about the history of it. But so as we said, it started as a one day winter solstice festival specifically for Saturn. And it's it was a still a big deal. It was on the official calendar. But then it's crept into three days, and that's when they linked the 17th, which was the day of Saturn, and the 19th, the day of Apalia, his his wife. And then later, they extend it right through to the 23rd, to the Sigillaria, the present giving day. And the whole seven days are really kind of a, a holiday period. Macrobius talks about it being, you know, a riotous and joyful atmosphere at the time. And so we don't know exactly when each element came in. But I imagine it's developing over time as the celebrations become more important or, you know, as they become a bit longer, people add in more kind of traditions, I suppose. You know, they become a tradition after a while, don't they? Yes, of course. And everyone does their own thing eventually as well, don't they? I mean, I don't know what it's like in your house at Christmas time, but uh, some people might want to open their presents first thing, uh, 6am with the children or maybe perhaps after midnight mass the night before. Or others might like to wait until the evening after they've had their Christmas meal. So, Well, exactly. And I think as we all have our own, you know, specific, you know, routines, either on our birthday or Christmas, that's what would have happened in the household. So you asked earlier, you know, was Saturnalia the same everywhere across the empire? I'm sure it wasn't, but it was probably the general gist of it would. But then people would celebrate either what they used to celebrate at home if they've moved out or they'd adapt it to fit to their current circumstances. You know, if you can't get all of the gifts that you're used to, you maybe look locally or, you know, you might have to fit around a different timetable. Say if you're in the army now and you're on you're on duty that day or whatever, you know, you adapt it to either how you want to, you know, celebrate because that's what you're used to or how you kind of have to in your new circumstances. Mm. But it all sprang, am I right in saying, from Rome and what was happening in Rome at the time. And I believe a sacrifice was involved as well. Yeah, that's right. So initially, Saturnalia, this one day, this festival to Saturn, involved a sacrifice of an animal, often a, a young pig, at the temple of Saturn in Rome. 
and then there would be a feast afterwards. And it's, you know, the timing of Saturn's festival with him being the god of sowing makes sense. It's midwinter when you're in the depths of winter, dark nights. You're starting, you know, farmers will have been thinking already about sowing and plowing and planning for the next harvest. So it, it makes sense to have something to mark that sort of period with that sort of god. Yes, and it would be important to feed yourself to actually have something that was available to eat because if things aren't growing in the way that they do in the spring and summer and early autumn, then you're going to struggle for things to eat. I suppose the closest thing at hand is going to be a living animal. Yeah, so, you know, a pig would be being fattened up and it is, you know, it's quite traditional, isn't it? Animals are fattened up to then be killed and eaten in the winter when maybe the fresh fruits and vegetables aren't as easily available but also then you need to make these sacrifices and these celebrations in this period to ensure that the crops do grow for next year so it's all linked yes absolutely you've reeled off a number of roman saturnalian winter traditions and i'd imagine a lot of listeners are probably thinking this is all very familiar so what are the strongest similarities between saturnalia and the modern western christmas celebrations that we have today so for me, I think it's the general feel. So midwinter, it's a really hard time, isn't it, for everybody? You know, the dark nights are coming in and people want something to celebrate and to cheer them up. And Saturnalia very much was a time to celebrate. There was cheerfulness, there was goodwill. And that's what Christmas is about. And, you know, in a way, Advent, isn't it? We have Christmas parties in the run up to Christmas. And it's that whole kind of atmosphere. But then there's lots of small, specific, really really kind of similar things so they used to light candles and wax tapers to link to Saturn bringing light in we put candles on our advent calendars now don't we there's advent candles that we have at home that we light that's very very similar we decorate our houses with reeds and holly and houses in the Roman period were decorated with evergreen plants and holly was actually the sacred plant of Saturn so holly is one of the few plants, I suppose, isn't it, that looks really good in the winter. It's at its best. So again, maybe being very pragmatic, it makes sense that that would be the plant you choose at Saturnalia. But we put holly, and how how related is holly to Christmas for us now? So you can see little bits like that. Obviously, we give presents. We drink and eat a lot, don't we? Um, <laughs> we also, I suppose I haven't mentioned actually, singing was very much part of Saturnalia. Christmas carols and Christmas songs are a huge thing, aren't they now? So there's all sorts of very specific similarities. But in general, for me, what kind of always stands out is it's the feel of the festival is very much the same. If you take away the different beliefs about Saturn or Jesus, it's about celebrating good things in a time of darkness. Yes, and trying to be joyous, I think, at a time when it's very dark outside, there isn't much natural light and that can inevitably lead to you feeling a bit down. So exactly. it's about compensating for what the earth is doing at that time and what the sky is doing. So when we look then, Francis, at differences, because we've just covered yeah. similarities, what are the differences? What, what are the customs and traditions that existed at Roman Saturnalia that don't exist now? Well, I suppose we don't have gladiatorial games, do we, or circuses with chariot races and the killing of exotic animals, although those events aren't specifically Saturnalian, but they were things that would take place at Saturnalia like they would with other festivals. There's no longer animal sacrifice, you know, at the altar of Saturn, which was a key part of the, the celebration. And another one we talked a little bit about was either the mock king or the lord of misrule. So this person who was 
normally very low down in the household who be in charge of the day or or the celebration. This is something that does carry on post the Roman period, but hasn't really survived up till now. Edward II and Edward III in the 12th and 13th century, they had a bean king who was in charge of their organising the Christmas celebrations. And even right through to Henry VIII, there's a, a source talking about a specific big celebration of Christmas that he had at Elton Palace in 1516. Um, and that was organised there by a master of revels, which kind of linked back to that Lord of Misrule. And even within the church, there was similar things with people kind of, again, inverted that social norm. But really from the 17th century that Lord of Misrule seems to disappear and we don't get that anymore. I think some people might say it's a good thing but there's always pranksters aren't there in any group so I'm sure someone would like to ring it back. Yes I think perhaps in some rural parts there's a bit of Lord of Misrule and the mummers plays isn't there in pubs? Yeah and that will be very much will be a link through so but it's it's only survived like you say in those pockets hasn't it whereas before obviously it was overarching and it was everywhere you know it's in the royal household it's just not survived quite so much in the mainstream i suppose there are some remnants of this sort of slight naughtiness in current pantomimes that we see at christmas time especially where the conventions of a play are broken where you have actors or characters interacting with the audience they break the fourth wall. That's something that I suppose somewhat slightly relates to the Lord of Misrule and, and breaking yeah. convention. It's a bit of fun, isn't it? Being cheeky, you know, because everyone expects it's going to, they know now it's going to happen, don't they? But it is still completely, it's the only place it happens on the stage, isn't it? You don't do that normally. No. I suppose the next logical question is, how slowly or quickly did Saturnalia develop into Christmas? I presume Constantine, the emperor, had a something to do with this well i think it's going to be really kind of gradual and probably different everywhere in the empire because so as you've mentioned there rightly constantine the first the emperor in 313 issued the edict of milan and that granted christianity legal status and officially ended persecution of christians so then it doesn't make it the only religion that's not until 325 the council of nicaea make christianity the official religion but it's not until 391 that Theodo- Emperor Theodosius bans pagan worship. So you've got there almost 80 years where, although the new official religion is Christianity, people could still worship the pagan gods, of which Saturn was one. The first record of Christmas wasn't until 336. I mean, obviously, it might have happened earlier. And so I think this whole four centuries is a time of change as we've discussed in our some of our previous podcasts, you know, and people will change at different paces depending on their beliefs or their situations and um, where they are in the empire, what everyone else is doing. So I think it's probably impossible to say, but there's been, you know, celebrations at midwinter for thousands and thousands of years, you know, in prehistoric sites, they find evidence of midwinter feasts. And so it's obviously an important time of the year for people to have a, a celebration. So we know that popular holidays continue to be celebrated long after they weren't official religious holidays. So Saturnalia did continue on to be celebrated, even when it wasn't an official religious celebration. So it's going to be a real male kind of mixed bag, really, I think. It's one of those things that's quite hard to chart, isn't it? Um, you need the records and um, yes. if they don't exist, it's quite hard to put an exact picture on it. 
After Christianity was adopted as the official Roman religion, as you've described, was there still a bit of tolerance for people who wanted to mark Saturnalia? Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, 325 is when Christianity became the official religion, but pagan worship isn't banned till 391. And even though it's officially banned in 391, I imagine there's still areas where, you know, people would let things go. So people wanting to mark Saturnalia for its original religious purpose, that's going to go on, you know, well into the fourth century, I've thought. And, you know, they think, and probably people did still celebrate Saturnalia, although without the religious aspect, maybe for even a bit longer. People are now getting a good sense, I think, of how Saturnalia started, how it developed over time, how it then became blended into this proto-Christmas. But today, of course, we celebrate Christmas on the 25th of December. Saturnalia had its peak on the 23rd. It lasted from the 17th to the 23rd and developed over the years and became extended. So where do we get this date today of the 25th of December for Christmas? Well, really good question, actually. So at no point anywhere in the Bible is there a date given for Jesus's birthday. References to the lambing season, obviously the shepherds are in the field tending their flocks and bring lambs and sheep to the stable, have led some theologians to conclude that it was spring that he was born in. So where we got December from is interesting. So the first day that we have of Christmas being attested is at 336 AD. So that's 20 plus years after Christianity's become the official religion. And the first Christmas day was originally held on what we now call the Epiphany, the 6th of January, which is obviously when the wise men arrive. Um, you know, it's end of 12 nights is another way it's known. And it only moves to the 25th of December that we know of, somewhere between 354 and 360 AD. Now, the 25th of December, it's not the day of the winter solstice, you know, that's the 21st. However, people have tried to look into why would we, you know, why would the 25th have been picked? And 25th of December was actually the day of Sol Invictus. Okay, so who was Sol Invictus? So Sol Invictus was another pagan god. Sol Invictus means the unconquered sun. He was a Syrian sun god. His popularity really overtook the traditional Sol. So there was a Roman god of sun called Sol, but this Syrian sun god really overtook that and it became Sol Invictus. Now, it becomes really popular under Emperor Elagabalus, who was emperor as quite a young boy between 218 and 222. Elagabalus thought he was a reincarnation of Sol Invictus and he tries really hard to make Sol Invictus the supreme god of Rome and he built two temples there to him. After Elagabalus dies, because of various things that he has done, his his memory is wiped from the record or it's tried to under the scheme of Damnatia Memoriae. So they try and erase Elagabalus's name and often by association Sol Invictus. But um, he makes a comeback and Aurelian, who was emperor 270 to 275, establishes him as what we can call a supreme deity, so one of the top gods, and he sets up a college of priests in Rome to Sol Invictus. And from then, Sol Invictus is really important, and imperial power becomes linked to the cult of the sun. It continues right through until the 4th century, and Sol and the worship of Sol was really one of the key cults in the 4th century. If you look at lots of 4th century coins, the emperor will have 
what we call a radiate crown, which is a crown with spikes on, meant to represent Sol. Quite a lot of them will have Sol on the back. So Sol's a really, really important god in the 4th century, as well as being associated with Mithraism, which is another Eastern religion. And so kind of linking the 25th of December for Christmas with Jesus's birth to Sol Invictus kind of perhaps makes sense because it's already an important day for people when you're trying to transition people's beliefs sometimes it's easier i think if things merge a little bit rather than it being completely new and different yes so they start to sort of make natural logical sense yeah exactly and if you you know because you you don't want to take away everybody's fun either so you don't want to completely cancel saturnalia so you make christmas a whole time of celebration and the 25th of December, you need to find a date for Jesus's birthday. Maybe that's just seen as as good as any. You need a, a midwinter celebration. And that's so that date is what you hang around, hang your Christmas celebrations around. And it's already known to be an important day because of the link with Sol. We do have a really lovely carving and relief at Corbridge here, which some people say is Sol Invictus. And some people say is Jesus with rays of sun coming out of his head. And you can see the similarities when you think about angels and Jesus and God with rays of light behind them and mm. a sun God with rays of light coming out of his head as well. Right, it's almost like a halo, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. That's an example there at the Roman town of, of Corbridge on Hadrian's Wall that is actually blending the two ideas together, really, in a piece of stone. Exactly. And I think, you know, if you speak to kind of how we said, you know, how do you pronounce Saturnalia? If you speak to different scholars, some will say... He, this is Sol Invictus, some will say it's Jesus, some will say, oh, we don't know, it could be a transition. And it's quite nice sometimes, isn't it, having those pieces that still raise questions and get you to think about these really complicated aspects of life that we'll never really understand, but it's nice to get a glimpse. Yes, it's really interesting because if you go to a church service for Christmas Eve or any time in Advent, you'll probably hear the vicar or the priest or whoever it is, and they'll talk about the triumph of light over darkness and that is something that is sort of almost being hinted at, I think, in this piece of sculpture that you've described. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, at the Saturnalia, you light candles to, you know, represent Saturn bringing light. So, again, it's all, there's lots of shared symbologies and meanings across these different festivals. Mm. You touched on Mithras, which is this Eastern cult, the god Mithras. Can you tell us a bit more about him? It's a he, isn't it? Yes, it is. So Mithras was originally a Persian god or deity, and he was eternally at war with evil. He had quite a hard life, you know. According to legend, he captured a bull, and a bull's really symbolic of kind of primeval force and vitality, you know, that life force. And he slew the bull in a cave, and that act kind of released the power of the bull for the good of mankind. When the cult was brought to the wider Roman Empire from the east, from Persia, um, it pretty much travelled with the army and traders. And it came to focus specifically on Mithras because Mithraism in the Persian world was slightly different to the version we get in the Roman Empire. And Mithras was seen as the saviour of his followers. And Mithraism, interestingly, unlike most pagan religions, was monotheistic. So you really should only really worship Mithras and nobody else. Whereas most pagan religions are polytheistic, so you can worship everyone because every god has a different role to play in your life, whether it's the god of doors, hearths, childbirth, trade, etc. But Mithraism 
was a mystery religion and it was very, very popular with army officers on the frontiers. So we have quite a lot of evidence for it on Hadrian's Wall. But it's interesting that it is a monotheistic religion, similar to Christianity in Judaism. So whether that is, again, any reason that some of these things are all linked and there's similarities. Again, Mithras is the bringer of light and good. It certainly sounds like a possibility if you've got um, a single single figure to which you place all your energies. And then the next thing that follows, I suppose, on from there is a Jesus figure. So it sounds possible. Well, you can see how, you know, the church has obviously been around for 300 years before it becomes the official religion. But then when it becomes the official and then the only religion, they need to try and persuade people to join them and believe in them. And if you can make people's path to change easier by giving them something familiar, then that's going to help, I think. And, you know, that's scholars agree. So making things seem familiar to new converts is possibly where we've got all of this mixed and shared symbology and meaning with the past religions and the Christian religion. That's true. But I suppose at a fundamental natural level, it also boils down to the fact that this all stems from nature and what the light and dark are doing at that particular time of year in the European Northern Hemisphere. So I suppose that's the key point, isn't it, really? that It is when we're you know, when we're specifically comparing Saturnalia and Christmas, you know, the celebrations are at that time of year for a reason, aren't they? Yes, which always makes me think that if people are living in the Southern Hemisphere, for me, Christmas always seems a bit of a strange time to be having it uh, when it's baking hot and it's 35 yes. plus degrees. Or a, a lot of the kind of traditions and symbols don't make sense if <laughs> yeah. the 25th of December is the height of your summer, does it? No. Well, at least not to people in the Northern Hemisphere, but, yeah. but when you've grown up with it in the Southern Hemisphere, you're kind of used to it, getting dressed up in um, very warm costumes, mm-hmm. um, even when it's really hot outside. <laughs> anyway, we've discussed how Saturnalia influenced Christmas. Are there any quirky Saturnalia traditions that still survive in little parts of the world? So I haven't been able to find any ones that are kind of direct relations, but there is quite a fun one. So in a city in Mexico, and I apologise to all Mexicans for my terrible pronunciation, in Oaxaca, which is O-A-X-A-C-A, city, on the 23rd December, so this is the Sigillaria in Roman period, since 1897, they've hosted an event or a celebration called the Noche de Rabanos, the Night of the Radishes. And radishes have been sculpted to depict nativity scenes and dioramas, and they're all in the, the city square, which I always think, I don't know if their radishes are bigger than the radishes we have in our supermarkets, but that is a skill. And obviously, it's a, it's a very recent addition to the Christmas calendar and a very specific thing. Perhaps, I don't know if that area is famous for radishes, but at Vindelanda up on Hadrian's Wall, one of the tablets there records a slave who's requesting somebody to buy them extra radishes for the Saturnalia Festival. It's a nice little link. (laughs) What do you think the parallels between Saturnalia and Christmas celebrations tell us about people's need to come together and celebrate this time of year, this this change effectively between winter and the coming spring? Well, I think we're recording this luckily today on a nice sunny day. It's cold, but it's sunny. But 
a lot of winter is dark and cold and wet and it would be quite miserable, can't it? And particularly if you're living in a society where you rely on the earth and the soil and the weather to sustain you, you know, you can't just pop to the shops, that you need something to sustain you, you know, mentally to keep you going. And having a fun celebration like this, whether it is Saturnalia or Christmas, really makes sense. You know, you need something to boost you as the nights get longer and the days get shorter and your food supplies dwindle and you hope that you'll last through till spring when you can harvest more food. Yes, it absolutely makes sense, doesn't it? From the way that human beings would have been more in tune with their natural surroundings. We don't yeah. have that today because we can wake up whenever we want. We can have blackout blinds. We can turn the light on. We yeah, can have we a fire. We can ship food in from all over. You know, we're not governed by the seasons for what we eat and how we live, really, are we? Uh, we've got central heating, we've got air conditioning, we have cars, but people still get, you know, the seasonal affective disorder, don't they? SAD and people sell those lamps for natural light. Everyone is affected, I think, by the changing of seasons, just in a different way than the Romans were. Through this discussion, Francis, we've talked about a lot of similarities and differences and parallels between Saturnalia and the modern Christmas, which are, you know, effectively about 2,000 years apart from each other. But are there any ways that we can get that midwinter festival feel good, joyous feeling, you know, going to English heritage sites during this season? Yeah, I think so. You know, a lot of our historic houses, you know, our teams decorate with greenery like we talked about and wreaths and holly, you know, and they put up trees and with lights on, which are wonderful. I don't know if the Romans ever really had light trails, but you know, obviously we have our enchanted light trails and lots of places do and they're a lovely way to kind of bring a bit of light and colour into the darkness of December aren't they? Mm. What's the best way as well just to round things off to wish people a happy Saturnalia? You would say to people I-O Saturnalia. Well on that note Francis we will wish everyone a happy Saturnalia and a happy midwinter a happy Christmas as well whatever festival they're celebrating in fact but yes. I hope it's happy. So thank you very much for explaining how Saturnalia seeded Christmas. It's really You're interesting. You're welcome. I want to go and have a party now. <laughs> <laughs> you've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could take time to leave us a review. Next week, we'll be back to find out about the Christmas traditions that emerged in the Victorian period. Sir Henry Cole is widely recognised as having produced the first commercial Christmas card in 1843, the same year that Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>